Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa, the podcast in which we interview changemakers from across the African continent. And today I'm joined by Kombati Marindami. Kombati is an investment professional based in Accra. He works for Camco Clean Energy. In fact, he's regional manager for West Africa. He spent the last decade working in climate finance and renewable energy. And I'm hoping that he's going to share with you, our audience today, a perspective not just on his business and the great work that they're doing in financing and developing renewable energy projects across the African continent, but also a little bit about what's happening in the global climate finance markets. Kombati, welcome. Thank you, Pakus. Thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. And thank you for agreeing to spend some time with our audience this morning. So let's go back to the beginning, if we may. You grew up in Ghana. Tell us a little bit about your your background, your childhood, and what motivated you to pursue a career in renewable energy and and climate finance. Okay, thanks. Here, I'm a Ghanaian. I was born in the southern part of Ghana, but originally from the northern part of the country. So I was taken back home when I was a kid and I schooled in my village. And then from there, I did secondary school in neighboring Togo where I had my baccalaureate in philosophy and languages before proceeding to the University of Ghana. So I, as you said, I'm an investment banking professional with over a decade of experience in renewable energy finance across several countries in Africa. And I have a background in business administration and development finance from the University of Ghana and University of Stellenbosch Business School in South Africa. I am passionate about renewable energy finance. And right after my master's program, I got hired as an investment analyst in 2009 by a New Jersey-based organization that was setting the pace for renewable energy finance in Africa, Asia, and also Latin America. I have since moved to a couple of organizations with focus on renewable energy finance. And for the past six years, I have been working at Camco Clean Energy, leading the investment efforts on the ground as the regional manager. So I would say it was a natural progression to move into this space because growing up as a kid in an off-grid community where I had first-hand experience in energy poverty, where we had to use candles to study at night. And then when I completed university and got hired by Balco, which is an aluminum smelting company in Ghana, I think halfway through the management training program, the company had to shut down due to energy crisis because I think the rainfall pattern around 2006, 2007 was different. And, you know, the country was depending on a hydro plant, Akosombo, and the water level had considerably gone down. So I think those two experiences shaped my thinking about where I really wanted to have an impact in my career. Thanks for sharing that, Kombati. And at what stage was it that you decided that you wanted to pursue a career in in renewables? I think that was during my master's program. You know, development finance, looking at 
what issues that are pertinent for the development of the continent. And I think at that point, I realized that given my experiences as a kid and my experience as um, you know a graduate, having my first job and being forced to leave for further studies, I think shaped my mind about the sector. And I started doing research. I had other opportunities, but I really wanted to work in the renewable energy space. And then I had an opportunity with Ianco. That was the beginning of the journey. The beginning of the journey. And so how has the industry changed in the 10 years or so that you've been providing creative finance solutions to renewable energy providers? I think it has changed in many ways. If you look at a decade ago, the cost of the technology, especially solar PV, was so high. And over the years, we've witnessed a decrease in the price of the technology, and it has become more and more affordable to end users. And such projects with such technology have become more economically viable and attracted funding even from commercial financial institutions. And if you look at the policy landscape, it has also changed. Governments have had to put in place new regulations and policies to create an enabling environment for renewable energy technologies to flourish. And I think from the end user's perspective, the technologies have matured and um, you know they have gained widespread acceptance among end users. And I think those have been significant changes. But also, if you look at the funding landscape, things have changed a bit because starting my career over 10 years ago, I realized that most of the solutions that were being implemented were not market-led solutions. They were like funded with grants mostly. And there was no commercial funding back in most of the projects. And I think the sustainability was an issue, actually moving from market development with grant funding to a point where it makes sense for commercial lenders to come into such projects. I think we've gotten to that transition point in terms of funding, even though there is the need for grant funding alongside commercial funding. I think 10 years ago, there wasn't much interest from commercial lenders and investors into these technologies because they were not mature enough. And, and you're referring specifically, are you, to off-grid and mini-grid energy solutions, electricity solutions for rural and, and sort of peri-urban areas? These are the ones that you're referring to that weren't commercially viable and which now are all some of them benefit from some grant funding, but it's these sorts of projects. I'm presuming projects at a greater scale are commercially viable and, and there's a lot of money flowing into them from commercial investors. Yeah, I think you are right, Marcus. You know, if you look at the off-grid technologies, I mean, solar is dominant. I would say that even though the technology is matured elsewhere, when we started deploying solar technology over 10 years ago, it was just solar lanterns. It wasn't any big capacity systems that could power cell phones or power productive use assets. And I think things have changed a bit since then. We have come to a point where these products are widely accepted. Utility scale in most African countries, you would not find any renewable energy utility scale project apart from big hydro. You know, utility scale is still catching up in most countries in Africa. Some countries are still learning how to implement them because there are challenges ranging from expertise in managing power from intermittent sources 
to um, you know the capacity of the grid in those countries. So if the grid is not stable or strong enough to accommodate a certain capacity of electricity from intermittent power source like solar or wind, then there is a challenge on hand. So I think if you are looking at off-grid and on-grid, they are at different stages of maturity in Africa. It depends on which country you are looking at. Thank you for those clarifications. For my benefit, as well as for the audience, perhaps give us an overview of the different technologies that you're working with and that you're funding on the continent. Yeah, I think on the continent and uh, in my current role, solar is still dominating, but we are looking at along the coast. So in Ghana, Senegal, you have wind resource that is high enough to make utility scale projects, um, you know, commercially viable. So there are, you know, some opportunities that we are looking at in those countries. And we have geothermal in East Africa and small hydro is also one of technologies that we are looking at. And is hydro still very much a part of the energy mix for financing community? Is it, is it seen as a genuinely good source of, of energy? I asked that question because I know that there's been a lot of opposition from conservationists and and those in the nature community. Just off the back of the G7 summit a couple of weeks ago, and notably, they announced a communique, a nature compact. It seems to me that conservation and the preservation and restoration of biodiversity is taking on, perhaps not before time, an increased importance. And how does that affect the sort of attitudes that you and investors view uh, hydro with? Marcus, I think you are right. I think recently we are seeing an increased challenge in terms of implementing big hydro projects because of the environmental impact. But if you are looking at small hydro runoff river hydro projects, the impact minimal compared to big utility scale hydro projects. So I think all these things are putting pressure on developers. It is actually becoming more expensive to develop and implement or build big hydro projects. I mean, the development timelines longer than it used to be because you need to do stakeholder engagements, do um, the ESIA, and actually come up with mitigation measures that can be satisfactory to a lot of these non-governmental organizations that focus on nature and I mean, the conservation of nature. So I think you have a point there. It is the reality. And we've taken note of that as an organization. You know, we have policies that guide the investments that we provide and go by that to select projects that have minimal impact on the environment and the communities around them. So runoff river hydro is still feasible. And I think we still believe that it is a major part of the energy mix going forward because the resource is there in most African countries. And I think it is important we take advantage of that, especially if the impact on the environment is limited. Thank you for that. Kambati, I wonder if I could ask you about the sort of peculiarities or the idiosyncrasies around renewable energy finance. What makes it different from other forms of project finance? Marcus, I think, um, you know, renewable energy finance, it is much different from other project finance deals because there are different risks involved. If you are looking at a wind or solar project, you are looking at a resource risk. Also, depending on the off-taker you are dealing with, 
there are liquidity challenges that you may have to contend with. And right from the start, you would have to think about which institutions that are better placed to manage some of the risk that you may encounter. In terms of resource risk, you can take time, do feasibility studies, and get enough data to inform the financial model that you would develop for the project. But, you know, if it has to do with dealing with a utility company, those, most of them we know, are not financially stable, then you would have to face payment delays and eventual default situations. So you would have to think about liquidity support packages and maybe some other forms of mitigation to backstop the default payment risk. Do you have any exposure to carbon markets? Are they a part of the, the financing solution? I mean, in my former jobs, I got involved in carbon finance projects. And I would say CAMCO as an organization was uh, one of the leading carbon finance institutions or organizations in the world some years ago. But we have stepped away from that business line and now focusing on management. And in order to avoid double counting, does not allow projects that we support to uh, register for carbon finance so they cannot monetize the carbon credits. So I think at this point, I would say carbon finance is not part of what we do now. Interesting. And tell us who the financiers are of the fund that you manage or tell us about the fund. Okay. The fund that Camco manages is called Renewable Energy Performance Platform. It was initiated by European Investment Bank and UNEP, but financed by the UK government. It is about £450 million. The objective is to help achieve the SC4O objectives in sub-Saharan Africa. So we support projects ranging from 1 megawatt to 25 megawatt and up to 50 megawatt for wind technology because for wind, I mean, doing anything below 50 megawatts in some circumstances might not be commercially viable. So we understand that challenge and there is provision for up to 50 megawatt for wind. Kombata, you're the regional manager for CAMCO in West Africa. It's a region that is known pretty much all over the world for having rich deposits of fossil fuels. And a number of economies in the region, reliant for government revenues on exports of oil and gas. How are you observing the transition to clean, green energy from these fossil fuel dependent nations? I think that is that is right, Marcus. You know, a number of countries, and I would note Ghana also joined the oil producing nations on the continent a few years ago. These countries depend on oil for their hard currency inflows or for their balance of trade, but um, they have increasingly realized the importance to shift from fossil fuels to renewables if they were to achieve well-functioning carbon-neutral economies. And this is because the oil prices haven't been doing well recently. And I think if you look at projections into the future, for the next 10 years, it doesn't look like there will be big improvement. But I think there is also an issue of cost, apart from just looking at the environmental benefits. Renewable energy technologies have come to a point where they are very competitive in terms of cost. So if you can get uh, below 10 cents per kilowatt hour from a solar plant, 
for a wind farm, I think that will be very competitive if you look at other forms of conventional power plants. So in most countries where it is challenging to extend the national grid, governments have put in place rural electrification programs that are based on solar mainly, uh, so solar mini grids to electrify a lot of rural communities that are not connected to the grid at the moment. But you also have market forces actually determining which way we should go when it comes to what energy sources we should consider for sustainable operations. So businesses cannot wait for 10, 20 years to start reducing their cost of electricity. So you see more and more businesses going off-grid, embedded generation or off-grid solar systems to meet their electricity needs. And I think that is changing the landscape because solar has come to stay, renewable energies have come to stay, and the economics speak for itself. It is not just anybody doing the PR, but businesses and households can really see the savings that they can make by going renewable. So I think the transition, whether it is being facilitated or not, has begun to sort of mimic the development of telephone services in Africa. So it is just spreading across towns and villages. I think that is what we are seeing. Very interesting analogy you draw with the early days of the cell phone industry um, boom on the continent. Of course, Lou Ibrahim, the famous founder of, of CellTel that did so well. I remember, I think I'm correct in saying that when he was raising money, he was in London at the time, I think, for CellTel. It was really only DFIs and I think led by the IFC and perhaps CDC who had the appetite for investing in cell phone technology business in, in sub-Saharan Africa. You mentioned just there the enabling environment for off-grid solutions. I know that just last week, after what's arguably a decade late, uh, some would argue, um, the South African government licensed for off-grid energy generation, I think up to 100 megawatts. I think I'm correct in saying that. Quite a, a big development there, and everyone's hopeful that that will lead to a lot more investment into the electricity generation sector there. I highlight that case in point just as a demonstration, really, that the policymakers and regulators have been pretty slow to create the uh, right enabling environment for independent power producers and grid renewable energy providers to uh, to come in and, and provide solutions for consumers. Is that changing? Uh, and perhaps you could give us a perspective on, well, certainly the West Africa region, but any views you have about the rest of the continent as well? I think that is right, Marcus. I think regulation is a very important piece of what determines progress in this industry. And I think it was good news to see South Africa take the lead in that perspective. And I would agree with you that uh, such changes take a while. Things are a bit slow. But it is mainly because the industry associations haven't been old enough with a lot of vibrant members to um, actually put pressure on governments to make that happen. So things are changing. People who are involved in this space are beginning to show interest in industry associations or organizations that can speak with one mouth and then put pressure on various governments to um, do the right thing or formulate enabling policies that can facilitate the work that we all do in this industry. So as investors and lenders, we have also shown interest in, in these associations and organizations. And we have a policy manager at Camco, for instance, who sometimes 
lead working groups in terms of formulating some white papers and then putting that to government to sort of pick for the industry, both developers and investors and you know lenders, for the governments to respond to specific needs of the stakeholders. So I think these things are changing as most industry organizations are becoming more established with uh, experienced and passionate people actually in leadership positions of those associations. So I think things are beginning to change. Interesting. But just to be clear, you have a, a policy manager, do you, at CAMCO, whose responsibility it is to lead policy advocacy for you so that you're in the business of advocating for the types of policies and regulatory environment that would enable you to invest with confidence and at scale as a sector. Mm-hmm. That's good to hear. I wanted to talk to you about the global context and its implications for how you see the energy mix in West Africa in the medium to long term. So we know that the whole world now is focused on getting to net zero by 2050. For those of our audience who didn't know that, at the end of the year, you will certainly be aware because there's a climate conference of parties, the UNFCCC process that will take place in Glasgow. I think it's towards the end of November. So we can expect all of us to hear a lot about commitments to getting to that objective, net zero emissions by 2050. Thankfully, most of the world's industrialized economies are signed up to that target some even ambitious to achieve it before that date, I believe. But I've seen reflected somewhere that the scale of investment required in the energy sector alone to meet that objective is something in the order of $1.6 trillion a year. Clearly a huge challenge, but also a really big opportunity for companies like yours at Camco and Combati, and other players within your sector. I wonder if you could project yourself ahead, possibly to 2050, but maybe even a little before then, and tell us in your own view, what you think the energy mix is going to look like in West Africa in 2040, 2050. Marcus, thanks for that. I mean, I would speak based on um, my personal experiences in terms of countries' specific targets for renewables in their energy mix. If you take Ghana, for instance, I think target was to have 10% renewables in the generation mix by 2020. That target was missed miserably, unfortunately. So it was shifted 2030. I think it looks like the country may get there to the 10% energy mix renewables in in the national energy mix by 2030. So Ghana is one example, and I think Ghana is miles ahead of a lot of countries who also have their individual targets of, I would say, 10 to 20% in some cases. I think some of the countries would be able to do that up to 10% by 2030, 2040, but others would still be lagging behind. So I think if you are looking at overall energy mix, I would Say in Africa, or if you look at sub-Saharan Africa, I think renewables would still be accounting for just under 10% of the generation mix, considering the trends and considering where they are at this point. So I think conventional energy plants would still 
form a majority of this country's energy backbone. We see some development, but it may be difficult for us to achieve up to 20% renewables by 2030-2040. Well, that's quite a depressing outlook. I was expecting renewables to make up a much bigger proportion of the energy mix 20-30 years from now. I mean, that certainly doesn't bode well for um, meeting net zero by 2050. I think that is right. If I may expand on that, you know, you've touched on the amount of money that is needed on yearly basis to achieve this. And if you look at the African continent, you look at the projects, whether off-grid or on-grid, you have a lot of DFI's participation. You know, companies like Camco actually providing funding. You don't really see a lot of local participation through the local financial institutions to finance renewable energy projects. And I think, personally, one way to quicken the pace of this shift is for me to be innovative in structuring deals in such a way that local financial institutions will be interested in refinancing these projects at some point. Because if you want a local bank to take construction risk on a solar project and they know nothing about solar, it will be difficult to convince them to place them in there. But if you take the lead, structure projects in such a way that, I mean, you look at the pricing and you have some incentives for refinancing, you de-risk the projects, you will be getting close to actually motivating local financial institutions to participate in these projects at some point through refinancing. So I think that is one way we could look at changing the narrative moving forward. And I think on the path of this transition, we also should see an increase in donor and multilateral credit enhancement for utilities. Because as I mentioned earlier, most African utilities are not financially stable. And if you don't have credit enhancement or liquidity support instruments, it will be difficult for lenders to support projects that could actually help these countries or economies transition from conventional power sources to renewable. Very interesting. I'll ask you a couple of questions about yourself, if I may, in the remaining time that we have. You've told us about your your motivations for pursuing a career in, in renewable energy and renewable energy finance in particular. Were there any people who you admired growing up working in this sector that encouraged you to pursue a career here? More broadly, I wonder if you could tell us about the sort of characters of inspiration that, that you grew up with and who continue to be a source of perhaps inspiration for you and why? Marcus, I, I think when I, I developed interest in this space, I think the industry was a nascent one. So I would say there were not many professionals in the space that I could look up to. It wasn't until I joined, I had a job in the industry that I started supporting a few people around me. And I would say one of such people was the regional manager at ENCO, called Kofi Katia Tabiri, Ghanaian who was based in Johannesburg at the time. And I think I was admiring him for the sheer passion that he had for the industry and entrepreneurship spirit, the extra mile to get things done. Those were some of the attributes that I I, I really found interesting about him. And when he left his job and then he started talking to me, 
we needed to build an LPG oil marketing company because at the time, clean cooking was a big focus for ENCO and LPG gas was a good substitute for charcoal in the cities and the government of Ghana had a program to drive the uptake of LPG in homes just to save the environment. So he's gone on to build, I would say, one of the biggest oil marketing companies, not distributing dirty oil, but LPG for cooking purposes, which is cleaner than charcoal, even if it is not renewable. But I think this is one of the people that inspired me on this path. And I wouldn't talk about the start of my career without him coming to my mind. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And finally, if I may, tell us if there are any young people listening to to this conversation who maybe, well, certainly would probably be interested in contributing to the global challenge to stop our planet burning and feel that they want to do so in more ways than their sort of personal conduct, but actually want to pursue a career in ways that could contribute to this challenge at scale, perhaps by joining your industry. What advice would you give to them? What should they study? Where could they start their careers? What sort of attributes and skills should they have? I would say if you look at myself, I have a background in business administration and development finance. Before I joined, um, you know, I started working in the industry. I I wasn't an expert in financial modeling, but I had a fair idea about financial analysis and I had good writing skills as well. So I think that was what propelled me to where I am today. But I see people who are successful with engineering background. My former boss, Kofi, that I mentioned was, um, you know, a mechanical engineer, but he was doing a great job and was able to learn transferable skills on the job as well in terms of investment appraisals. So I would say any business degree plus engineering is also gives you a good grounding. And I think economics is also seeing people with economics background doing a wonderful job in this space. But I would say we have various aspects of the industry. You may want to join project development side, in which case you don't really need to be a good financial model builder or an investment person before doing that. So with engineering background, you could be part of the project development teams with rural community background or maybe environmental studies. You could be very useful in terms of ESIA, in terms of stakeholder engagement. There are a whole lot of aspects to the industry. And I would say any university program would be applicable. It only depends on what kind of institution you want to work with. If it is a financial institution, then you need to know that investment banking would require a certain level of uh, training in terms of numbers, financial modeling, and financial analysis. Great. So it's a diverse suite of skills required to conceptualize, design, finance, develop, operate renewable energy projects and no specific career path. And I forgot to mention law. I mean, you have to deal with legal documents in this space. And I think lawyers that have expertise in renewable energy are actually doing a great job internationally in terms of helping structure or draft contractual documents that govern relationships between parties in deals, in different deals. So I think that is an important aspect that uh, you know one could also look at. Great. Well, that's a good note on which to end. So 
for our audience. If you want to get involved and devote your careers to addressing perhaps the biggest challenge of our time, which may or certainly perhaps is the greatest opportunity of our time, which is to get to net zero by 2050 and increase the contribution of renewables to our energy mix. And there are lots of fields of endeavor and areas of study that you can pursue that would lead you and can lead you to a career in in the renewable energy sector. So thank you, Combate, for spending this time. It's been a real pleasure to, to get to know you and to learn more about the renewable energy sector and the great work that Camco Clean Energy is, is delivering in this space. Thank you, Marcus. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.